Welcome to the Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists, examining timely psychological trends and excellence in clinical practice. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten. I'm thrilled to have Dr. Heidi Hutman with us today. Dr. Hutman is an assistant professor in the College of Education and Human Development at Temple University in Philadelphia. As a professor and researcher, she has frequently spoken about supervision and training of health service psychologists with a particular emphasis on multicultural competency and development. Today, we'll be discussing supervision and training in health service psychology, so I'm pleased to be talking with her for this episode. Heidi, thank you so much for being with us today and welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Sam. I'm so glad to be here with you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, as you know, I have been very, very excited to talk about supervision. We have not had a supervision and training podcast, and I could think of no better guest. So Heidi, I am so glad you're here with us. You know, in my training, I always saw supervision as like a hallmark skill. This is something we've got to be good at as psychologists. It's part of our training, and it's part of, I think, our fundamental areas of competency. You know, when you graduate, that you're able to, to hopefully be a supervisor as well as a clinician. And so, you know, I am excited to talk about it from that angle, but I'm also interested to talk more with you about what it means to be a supervisee, as it is a universal experience for us as doctoral students, interns, postdoctoral trainees, and even some, including me, as licensed health service psychologists too, trying to seek that out. And so for years, literature on supervision has often seemed to emphasize this like developmental model of supervision. And, and that really was the primary model that I heard about in my own training program. So it made me kind of wonder, help us get up to speed. Where are we in the supervision literature? What are, what, what are people talking about nowadays? Yeah, thanks so much for checking in about that. Um, supervision is so core to what we do, and yet we have more questions than we have answers at this point, um, which can make things really exciting and also really challenging. So I think that there are things that we know a lot more about, and yet the more things change, the more they stay the same to some extent. Mm -hmm. And so we consistently find that the relationship in supervision is what matters, or what we call in the literature, the supervisory working alliance. And so I've been really excited by the growth in the literature around um, just really consistent findings around this supervisory relationship being core and being a predictor of so many important outcomes, whether that's satisfaction with supervision, whether that's trainee skill development, um, whether that's the willingness to disclose in supervision. And all of these things look different depending on kind of the identities that each person holds in the supervision encounter. And when we talk about supervision, we're really talking about the supervisor, the supervisee, and then the supervisee's clients who aren't even in the room physically right. during supervision sessions, but they're so central to the work we do and they're a key focus there. And so I've been really excited to see the growth in the literature around multicultural issues and supervision and training because we're starting to really understand what helps and what hurts and how to show up for our supervisees and attend to the multiple intersecting identities that each person 
holds and brings to the supervision and training context. And still we have so much more work to do. Uh, we know that our trainees come in with considerable trauma, trauma, ancestral trauma, racial trauma. And so we're just starting to scratch the surface there to really understand how we can kind of support our trainees in really bringing in their whole selves into the supervision realm. Um, we also have a lot more work to do around really understanding intersectionality and supervision. We tend to study these things in isolation just because it's methodologically more feasible to kind of say, okay, we're gonna understand the experiences of supervisees of color um, and, and recruit selectively for that sample. However, we also struggle because we know that supervisees of color are not, they're not homogenous, right? And there's right. more within group di diversity than there is between group diversity. And so being able to really understand kind of what works for what supervisee at what time in what context and in what setting and with what kind of clients is still very complex. Mm -hmm. And, and it, in most ways, it, it's almost impossible to study at, at such a kind of nuanced mm -hmm. level. So we have to know kind of what we can take from the literature and what we can kind of leave behind as well. In terms of development, Sam, you mentioned that development models were, um, developmental models were really core to your education. Right, right. And I love hearing that. Um, it's interesting, you know, I think that we have for a long time had a lot of models um, the developmental models in, in supervision came out around the 50s and 60s, starting with folks like Logan Bill and Delworth. Um, and, and slowly, we're actually starting to develop standards for supervision and health service psychology. So we know that we had a task force that APA put together um, in 2014, and they put forward standards. And that had not existed before then, which is kind of wow. incredible if you wow. think about the yeah. amount of Kind of guidance we have in working with different topics or different um, areas of practice, and I mean, so this being touches able everybody, now, Heidi, to to hear you say that, I mean, this touches everybody. Everybody's got to go through this pipeline, and to to not have that in place, that's that's shocking. It is. It's really shocking. But I think in some ways it's because like supervision is the air we breathe right and so it's like when you're in training it just is and it's kind of taken for granted until somebody says like hey this thing it's really important that we study it and we get really good at it um and at it specifically not just kind of like i'm a good clinician therefore i'll be a good supervisor and we'll talk right. i can talk a little bit more about that in a bit but so what we've been able to do is we've been able to start actually studying these guidelines and saying, okay, can we turn this into some type of way to assess trainee progress? And that really reflects the larger competency-based movement and health service psychology. And that's a good thing. We want to be accountable for what we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, and I think that we've seen a lot of growth in this area, both in practice and in research, but it's kind of messy because how do you define level of training in the first place? You know, you have bachelor's level admits, you have master's level admits, you have folks who are coming in with considerable professional work experience. So do we take like year in program? That doesn't tell the whole story. Right. Um, do we take amount of clinical supervised clinical experience? That's also a little bit diluted in terms of what we're looking for. Um, also, what are we looking for? Are we looking at like general clinical competence or competence in assessment, competence in, you know, working with DBT in a group context? So, so depending on kind of what your vantage point is, the answers will look very different.
it. Mm-hmm. Um, the developmental models that were kind of put forth earlier on, whether that's like Bernard's discrimination model, some of the earlier ones, they're really intuitive and have a lot of common sense, but they haven't held up in the research. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason is that we don't really assess trainees over time. Mm-hmm. And so we just kind of haven't had the opportunity to really see these theories come to life in the way we would need to and want to, um, to be able to have confidence in their utility beyond kind of just being helpful, um, helpful guidance, which they are, they're incredibly helpful in that way. Um, but more broadly speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Heidi, I really, really appreciate that kind of detailed response and, and also getting caught up to speed. Cause like I said, a lot has changed. And even, you know, as you know, 50s and 60s that these initial kind of approaches are coming out, a lot has changed. And the makeup of the students, the makeup of the professors, the makeup of those that we serve all have become more diverse. And yet, I, what I'm hearing you say is those developmental models seem to be very specific and, and in many ways difficult to apply when we had to actually look at it. Like, what did this actually mean in practice? What would this actually mean across the types of uh, professional services that we offer for assessment as an example, a big example. So I really, really appreciate you highlighting some of the the challenges therein. I'm really kind of curious, especially because our podcast appeals to kind of a wide variety in our audience, right? I mean, there are people that are in their doctoral training. There are people that are thinking about going to a PhD or a PsyD. There are people that are interns, postdocs, and a big portion that are health service psychologists, whether they're early career or later in their careers. And I'm really curious, especially as a, as a psychologist in practice myself, I'm curious what role supervision, and maybe you'd call it consultation once you've got a license, but what role supervision can play for those currently in practice? And as you bring up that, that idea of competency, you know, how do we as licensed psychologists reevaluate our competencies? Oh, I know I'm asking you two, two questions. I'm ne- I was told I was never supposed to ask two questions at once. So maybe let's, let's start with that first <laughs> one of like, you know, what is that role across your, your levels of training? Yeah, I mean, I think that those are both incredibly important questions and I'm going to try to do justice to each of them and appreciate you pacing me by kind of breaking them up. Um, You know, for the, I'll I'll kind of start in talking about those in practice. Supervision continues to be relevant for those in practice and career long supervision is critical for ethical and effective practice. And yet it's rare. It's rare um, in actual reality because of time, resources, money. Um, And yet those who partake in it find it incredibly invaluable. And so I'm a big proponent for me, the kind of, you know, recalling Goldilocks, right? So it was too hot. It was too cold. It was just right. The just right for me in this moment feels like peer supervision because you don't have the hierarchy in the same way. It isn't evaluative. It's meant to be a kind of supportive as well as challenging. If you, if you're able to kind of work with a group of trusted peers with whom you feel safe to disclose your struggles in the service of your learning. And so, especially when we're kind of in a place of, you know, kind of entering in a new field of practice or with a new population, a new setting, um, that peer support and peer consultation, as you said, it might look more like 
consultation. And that's also consistent with developmental models. As you gain more experience, your supervisor does start to serve in a more consultant role for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the struggle is, is that we don't have licensed professionals who maybe have different expectations. We know that at a doctoral level in an APA accredited health service psychology program, we're going to have supervision training. What that training looks like varies to a remarkable degree, but we know that the field is not just full of psychologists, right, at the doctoral level. And so there is a lack of kind of systematic training for licensed professionals. And and that's something that's really hard because as I was saying previously, being a good clinician is important, but it's not enough. Um, This is really distinct area of practice. And so it has to be recognized as such. One thing that I really love um, and it's it's catching fire in the world, you know, it, it was a term that was originally developed, uh, a practice originally developed by Erickson and Erickson. Um, and they, I remember learning about this in undergrad. Mm. Um, I learned about uh, motivation and expertise right. development. And I remember we watched videos of Tiger Woods sitting in his high chair at like two years old, watching <laughs> his father golf in the, in the garage and really like kind of thinking about like, well, how did he kind of get to this point? And so Erickson and Erickson put forth this, uh, this construct or this framework that's called deliberate practice. And Tony Roos-Manier has been so wonderful at bringing this into the clinical world. And so he's really kind of spearheaded along with folks like Rod Goodyear and Bruce Wampold, um, Scott Miller, who's uh, up in Canada. Um, I believe he's out in Calgary. And so really monitoring your practice and then monitoring your supervision. And so we don't really ever know how we're doing unless we're gathering data to really assess our level of competence. And so being able to kind of really um, give your supervisees assessments and being able to aggregate them across large amounts of supervisees so that supervisees form, feel more comfortable evaluating their right. supervisors because that's complicated given the power di- dynamic and big risk for the supervisee mm. um, so that you can really start to see where you're excelling and where you might need more training. Mm-hmm. You know, you're starting to talk about something that uh, it, you're almost reading my mind here. You know, I feel like it's a very, very natural segue to talking a little bit more about working across those power differentials, you know, especially as you, you're trying to say, we need to get some data that makes total sense. And right. You know, as a supervisor, I might not be supervising that many people individually. So it can be hard for that supervisee to feel like this is a safe space given that power differential. You know, I think about the two of us, we hold a great deal of power as as professionals, you know, as a, an assistant professor or as a licensed health service psychologist. I mean, just sitting down, whether we're digitally like this today or physically in the same room in front of a trainee, I know that I'm holding a great deal of positional power. Mm-hmm. And along with a, a number of intersecting identities of privilege that I'm also mm-hmm. holding at the same time. And so I am really curious, like how do we navigate and foster these meaningful and clinically effective areas or um, instances of supervision while managing these differences? Yeah, oh, that is the question of the moment, Sam. Um, You know, I think the first thing is we have to recognize the power we have um, and recognize that because we are in a fiduciary relationship with our supervisees. And so what that means is that like, 
they are more vulnerable than us. And given that they're more vulnerable than us by virtue of depending on us for recommendation letters, um, being able to sign off on licensure hours, just so many things. Um, And so because of that, we have a responsibility to protect them um, and to support them. And we need to be the ones having conversations about um, our various identities and what they mean for how we approach supervision uh, and welcoming those conversations from our supervisees as well. Um, You know, it's it's interesting. I think that a lot of the work that we do, both in practice and clinical practice and in supervision, there's this assumption, like we do some really weird work, right? Like in what, on what planet do we just expect strangers to come to us and, and spill their guts? And yet this right. is what we can on, right? <laughs> and so similarly, like the trainee is expected to be vulnerable and the rub is that they are also in a power disproportionate relationship where they're being evaluated. So it's like, be vulnerable, be vulnerable, but also get a good grade. And those messages are so hard to kind of reconcile. And so being able to recognize like trust is earned, it's not a given. And on top of it, really knowing who you are, you know, understanding what you represent to others. So what is your stimulus value? So I'm thinking about kind of myself, I identify as white, I'm Jewish identified. Um, my, my Jewish identity is very core to me. And I reflected a lot over the last couple of years around like my own culturally congruent coping response to stress. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like I get activated in times of stress. I want to be quote unquote helpful. And so if, but I need to kind of think about like if a supervisee from a different background might shut down in times of stress and that's what's been culturally congruent for them, how am I amplifying the power differential if I'm getting all quote unquote helpful and they're sitting there needing a minute. And then I think the last, the last thing that I just wanted to kind of, I guess, throw, throw out there is that representation matters. And so, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of a community of training versus just being on an island. And so recognizing your limits, you cannot possibly offer somebody everything and, and you might, and it's not beneficial for them to only learn from you and to only have your perspective. And so, you know, if I have supervisees who let's say are holding a lot of racial trauma, I'm going to ask about that while also recognizing that I, I don't have the lived experience of racial trauma. And so it's beneficial to connect folks with other mentors that are really kind of repre- provide representation in areas that I may not be able to, um, even, even if I'm committed to understanding my supervisee's experiences and do a lot of work, especially at the beginning and getting to know who they are and them getting to know who I am um, and hopefully kind of working up to a place. I had a supervisee this past year and, and we both, I mean, you know, last summer was very hard. There was a lot going on. There were, you know, there were protests and, and police brutality and, and just so many different things in the pandemic. Um, just, it was an election year. There was so much stuff happening and it all comes into the supervision realm. And so being able to kind of make it a point to recognize and name that to say like this is the stuff that we're bringing in this is our context in this space the space is a microcosm of the larger program the larger university this the city the, the society and so like 
you know, what do I represent to you? And what does that mean? And how can we kind of learn from each other? And I remember my supervisee sharing, like, there's a difference for me around transparency and vulnerability. I will be Mm -hmm. transparent with you, um, but vulnerability is earned. And so that was Mm -hmm. a really kind of important, um, just important moment for me. And, and when I did finally, I think, um, you know, be was successful in in communicating that I was a person that was safe enough to be vulnerable with. I really saw that as a tremendous gift. Mm -hmm. How did you get to that place, Heidi? You know, I, I think to my past experiences being a supervisor and I think about all the constraints, some of which you named, you know, like uh, we hold this positional power. I, I, I may represent you know, a great deal of cis straight white men to folks when they sit down in front of me. And, and I might represent the institution. Yeah. I might represent the programmatic bureaucracies, you know, mm-hmm. I might represent the gate that has to be pushed through to get to the next step. And, and we might have four, five months to do good work. Yeah. I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm hearing what you're saying. And I'm also thinking, gosh, so what does this mean? Like, how do we do this? Well, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think that we, we try our hardest. First of all, I don't know that we're always going to be successful. So first of all, like knowing that we are going to screw up, Mm -hmm. creating a culture of mistakes and working through conflict um, really receiving that as a, as a gift, um, having a sense of humility, Mm. I think really having so much support from other colleagues and friends in the field where I could say like, is this, is this white guilt or is this like, what was going on for me in this moment? Like, did Uh. I make this decision in a way that, you know, was, was really kind of showing up for my supervisee or was there something I was sitting with that motivated those decisions in that place? And I think then being, being vulnerable as well, you know, I think Mm. vulnerability begets vulnerability. And, Mm. and so being able to say like, you know, to go back, if there are times where things don't feel right. Um, And of course in our online setting it gets it's even harder to track those things I find mm-hmm. um, because we don't have access to energy in the same way right. or our nonverbals um, you know we see these little Brady Bunch boxes and, and that's all we get but um, I think being able to say like wow you know Sam I, I'm thinking about our, our last supervision session and I was thinking about that that client who you talked about and you were, you were sharing how you're feeling really um, just, just really worried about their, their kind of their immigration experience here. And you're really feeling pulled to do a lot for them. And, and, and I think I just kind of was dismissive last week. And I, I don't know if I was in a rush or what was happening with me, but I don't feel like I showed up for you in that moment, the way you needed. And you were really telling me something important. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if maybe we could go back to that if you're willing, because it sounds mm-hmm. like you were really onto something and I might've glossed mm-hmm. over it in a way that made you feel like that wasn't worth, worth discussing. And I really mm-hmm. do want to hear about that. And I'm sorry um, if, if I came off that way. Wow. That humility and that vulnerability. I, I got to admit, like when I hear you talk about it, Heidi, I, 
I recognize, gosh, what a growth edge from, from me. You know? mm. I, I can recollect or think about many moments, even in my own, you as a supervisee or a supervisor, or even in my clinical work, you know, noticing a rupture and sometimes struggling to name it or struggling, struggling to be vulnerable when I name it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really powerful it's, to be able hard. to hear like that that's possibility. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really hard, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I definitely, I think the fact that you can kind of reflect on that is such a beautiful mm-hmm. thing. And, and then hopefully, you know, we, we continue to kind of model that sense of humility. I, I can remember times where I had conversations with a supervisor, a training director. Um, there were times where it felt like, oh, wow, like I, I'm not going to be able to be, be myself with you. And, right, and, and right. you know, we're, we're always kind of attuned to, to indications that that's not going to be possible, especially if we have marginalized identities. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's, it's been really great to have people be like, thank you. Wow. Like that took a lot of courage to tell me that you weren't feeling so good about that comparison I made between right. um, Jewish people and, and whoever or whatever it was. Um, thank you so much for telling me. I never would have known without you having that courage. So thank you so much. And that tells me also that we're doing a good job in here. Um, right. If you feel like you can come to me and I hope that you'll continue to come to me. Yeah. Um, one thing I do with my groups, like my supervisees in, in group settings is I, um, at the beginning of supervision, I talk about like what happens to you when you're not feeling safe. Mm-hmm. And so like, how, how would we know in this space? Wow. And, and I include myself in that. Um, because even, you know, I, I do hold a lot of power in the room and it would be, um, problematic for me to assume that my experiences are, are the same as my supervisees who are being evaluated. Um, and also I, I think it's important for them to know that I'm also a person, um, because I, I can't expect them to feel like they can be people if I'm not able to be myself in the room. Right, right. That's so true. No, Heidi, we just have a few minutes left. And I want to actually home in on something that you were talking about in your previous answer, which is around this massive, massive shift that we've all been making to our Brady Bunch lives, to being at a distance. In this last year and a half, we've, we've gone through countless changes, including this very rapid expansion of telepsychological services, including supervision, the, the topic of today's podcast, you know? And I'm, I'm really curious what supervision is looking like these days at a distance and how you've navigated this. Oh my goodness, that, I love this question, Sam. I've been asking myself all year long, kind of how things have changed, what has changed, um, how do we assess um, supervising competence in, in light of everything that is going on, um, as well as kind of us practicing from a distance. Um, I think a lot of us built the airplane while we were flying it, to be quite honest. There isn't, you know, there isn't an algorithm. I remember joking with my boss. I said, um, hit her, uh, her husband's also a psychologist and it is like a stats whiz. And I was like, 
did Joel develop an algorithm to assess how trainees who are coping with loss might have COVID themselves, um, wow. have their entire families in their spaces, mm -hmm. and also are receiving supervision? Like, how do we evaluate that? Um, because it is, it's, it is incredibly challenging. Um, a couple of things that I think have been really helpful um, is first of all, we had some research on telesupervision beforehand. And so we know that telesupervision works. Um, and we know that the working alliance, the relationship in supervision is comparable, satisfaction with supervision is comparable. And so that's been really great. And, and speaking as somebody who did um, you know, supervision remotely over the past year and a half, um, I've been so thrilled with how it's worked out and so relieved and just like so proud of my students and their resilience and their engagement and their love and support for one another. I mean, it, it's just been so great to see. I remember um, after my first class where I pulled off like the role play and the whole thing and we were, you know, doing a lot of supervision stuff. And at the end of the class, I, I teared up. Mm. Um, and they, they were like, you know, Dr. Hubman, are you okay? And I said, yes, like, I just can't believe this worked, you know, <laughs> sure, and, we, and we got sure. to do this. Um, and that was really amazing. Uh, and, and it's just so, so helpful to be able to think about kind of what, what opportunities come out of this very high crisis, challenging time. I think the other thing um, is that we do have some research on trauma-informed supervision. And I think if we are thinking about our supervisees as holding so much trauma, then, then we need to kind of be providing trauma-informed training. I think right now we have a lot of trauma in training, but I don't know that we're providing trauma-informed training. And so I'm interested in kind of continuing that work and really thinking about what that might mean. But what it means for me right now and what it has meant for me is just to be able to kind of think about like, sometimes we need to ground ourselves. We need to say like, today's date is this, where are you right now? How are you feeling? Um, we need to kind of think about how to increase control and choice and autonomy in supervision right now, because supervisees and you know, and, and supervisors. So that's part of the complexity. Like we just have so much, so little control over, over the chaos that is our lives right now. Right. And I think the complexity is that, you know, our, the parallel process is so real. And so our supervisees are saying like, how do I sit with my client who's dealing with the same things I'm dealing with or worried mm -hmm. about? And, and we're saying, well, how do we sit with our trainees, wow. you know, who are holding what, what, what we're holding. Um, and so I think being just really honest about it and being open about it and, and having a lot of compassion um, and flexibility and modeling that, you know, and, and there are moments where you just, you don't have it all together and it sucks and your Zoom updates in the middle of the thing and your laptop right. that's on your last leg is like over it. And, and that's hard, but you know what, in those moments, you're just like, yeah, this is, this is messy right now and we're going to roll with it. And hopefully that gives supervisees permission to do the same. I know that my three-year-old, um, Skylar, God bless her. She, um, I had my practicum class on, in the evenings and so she wasn't at school and 
the students loved, you know, having her come on every, uh-huh. every Thursday night and wish whoever had a case conceptualization, good luck. But for me, that, that was a challenge. And I had to be okay with the fact that my work and my life were kind of colliding in that way. Um, there are your boundaries, like just, it's like it gets smashed and, and everything gets mixed around and you're at home and you're working and it's inescapable. And I'm like, I'm reacting. My part of me is like, oh my gosh, that's so exciting that you were able to adapt. And the other piece of me, I think this piece that's like, you know, well, all my training was, you know, in person, all my supervision was in person. We always had a dedicated space and a place to do it. Those boundaries were so firm. So like part of my brain is saying, oh, isn't that alarming? And then the other piece is like, isn't this exciting? And I'm, I'm curious, like how have you felt as these boundaries have shaped and changed? I've, I've felt all the things, Sam, honestly, all the, all the things that you're describing. Um, I, I think that, you know, we've, we've had to be flexible. What it looks like to be quote unquote professional, I, I think is very complicated. And I'm aware of like policing professionalism and what that means and how that's been amplified as well. Like, you know, in terms of a very white um, heterosexual uh, cisgender male version of, of professional quote unquote, which is very distanced from one's life, right. And one's personal identities and who, who we are and what we do outside of the world of work. And I, I don't think that that was ever possible for me. And I identify very strongly as a feminist. Um, but this has definitely been a shift for me, um, because I, I, I truly never even used to do work at home, um, because I really like to keep those boundaries so separate. Um, you know, the, the flip side of that, even though there's been so many wonderful kind of op- opportunities that have come out of this for training, for supervision, um, for the work that we do in, in ways that I don't know that we ever knew was possible, we also have some some issues or some, some kind of wrinkles that we need to iron out, mm-hmm. um, you know, we can't talk about clients when other people are in the room, right? And so what happens when you're living in a small apartment with your relatives coming in and out of the room? That's so true, yeah. And so I've had to private message students to say like, I need you to disconnect and come back when you can be, be by yourself or, or I need to kind of know how you're managing the fact that I see people walking by you um, or I see you're driving in a car right now or you're in the grocery store and I'm worried. I'm worried about our clients and, and we confidentiality has to be upheld like without, you know, without exception, at least in, in this context. Um, and, and we have students who turn off their video and their audio and we don't know what's happening with them. And that's challenging. And I don't wanna assume the sh- constraints that they might be under um, or what it means for them to kind of reveal parts of themselves in their home and their living space, um, which they may or may not feel good about or feel ashamed about. And so it, it's been really, really hard to kind of figure out. Um, and also so incredibly rewarding in the most unexpected ways. You know, Heidi, before we run, I, I kind of have one more question for you. And, and that is, how do you think this year and a half, what do you think we'll take from this year and a half and say, this helped us, this bettered us? Yeah. You know, I, I think that we initially had 
no choice, right? We had no choice but to pivot. Pivot is a huge pandemic vocabulary word. Mm-hmm. Um, but now we're here and we have, as you said, we have a lot to learn about this experience. And so we are more comfortable with technology. Awesome. Yeah. Like how great is that? We can offer accessible and affordable options to meet supervisees and clients where they are. That's a big deal. Yeah. You know, and so I hope that we continue to keep that. I really do. I hope that we can offer distance remote options for folks who who wouldn't otherwise have access. Um, I think about, you know, some of my students struggle to put gas in their in their car. Um, And so what it might mean for them that they wouldn't have to make that commute or maybe wouldn't have to make that commute as much. And so I hope that we can kind of capitalize off of the benefits and also minimize some of the the challenges, whether that's, you know, technological glitches, um, really thinking about how to attend to the relationship, how to attend to kind of ruptures, especially in group supervision. I think there's just so many people that you're kind of handling. And so being able to kind of feel, feel more comfortable. I know for me, that's something that, you know, has, has, there's been a learning curve where I've had to be like, like, Oh, Hey Sam, like I, I noticed you, your, your posture shifted a bit, like, mm-hmm. did, you know, around when we talked about this, like, I was wondering, I just want to check in with something was going on for you and being okay. And saying some of those things, because I think when we were in person and, and not to sound, you know, weird, but I, I do really believe in energy. And so like, I would be able to say to students, like I'm feeling a lot of heaviness in this corner of the room. Um, or, you know, like the energy switched here, like what just happened? Mm -hmm. What did I miss? Or, or what, you know, how'd I, how'd I miss you all or whatever. Um, and so I think that those are the things that I'm still kind of wondering about and, Mm -hmm. and wanting, wanting to be able to find ways to, bring that in more to the supervision and training context. Absolutely. Well, Heidi, like you said in in your answer, I I really appreciate you coming on today and and helping us all pivot and think about the importance of like where we go next and how we navigate this next academic year, for instance. You know, I, I so appreciate you taking the time to share what you've learned and your expertise with us today. Um, so thank you so much. And, and any last remarks before we run? No, I mean, thank you so much for having me and for prioritizing supervision and training issues today. I feel like sometimes it can feel like clinical practice is the main act and supervision and training operates in the dark behind the curtains. And so I'm just really appreciative to be in conversation about a topic that is so near and dear to me and so critical for our field. So thank you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm there with you. And, and like we were talking about earlier, the, the idea that supervision and training touches each of us and then thereby our clients, it is so important. And I am very, very thankful both to you and our listeners for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Samuel Lesgarten, and this has been The Clinical Consult, a podcast from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists. As a reminder, All episodes provide general information for discussion purposes only and don't serve as formal clinical advice or continuing education.